0: So this last week in our series on the Lord's Prayer might be wondering, well, why don't we cover for thy is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? And the reason is not because I won't be here next week, although I won't. Um, it's that the earliest Greek manuscripts don't include that in the prayer. But the, the translators of the uh, King James Version, they were relying on what they thought were earlier manuscripts, and, and it was included in those manuscripts. And that's the version of the prayer we've all become familiar with. And I can see why someone would want to tag, tack that onto the ending, because it brings the prayer to a big, rousing finale. It sort of points us back to the grand statements at the prayer's beginning. The stuff about heaven and hallowing God's name and about the coming of the kingdom. Jesus, however, appears to be content with leaving things on sort of a somber note. He offers us a prayer which starts with his Father in heaven and ends with kind of a SOS, a cry for help. In recent years, there's been a good deal of discussion about the way the Kremlin has used, and others have used, uh, social media to promote propaganda and misinformation. But, you know, that is what Facebook is for every user, really. It's an opportunity for each of us to be our own ministers of propaganda, promoting the republic of self, right? Scroll through your Facebook feed, And you'll swear that all your friends and old classmates, all they do is eat photo-worthy meals, attend ceremonies for their award-winning children and grandchildren, go on fabulous vacations, complete a host of artistic and home remodeling projects, and then they get vaccinated and vote. Right? I mean, that's what it is. Uh, We get... get, Provide one another this, the the most well-edited versions of ourselves. Now imagine there had been social media in Jerusalem, the night the disciples celebrate Passover. You can sort of imagine Peter saying something like, Hey, Jesus, come here a second. You know, (laughs) taking a selfie and then posting it and saying, you know, uh, I would do, you know, Putting in there, I would do anything for this man. Hashtag ride or die. Hashtag best friends forever. I mean, that is that night, that is the image that the disciples have of themselves. And they were determined to project to Jesus. And when Jesus says to one of to, to them, you know, one of you is going to betray me, they don't want to hear that. It's like the coach gathering the team around in the locker room before the big game and saying, I got a bad feeling about this. But Jesus does, he's got a bad feeling. Before going off by himself, he tells him, pray that you do not come into the time of trial. Pray that you not come into temptation. Prayer is not sort of a spiritual social media It's not an occasion to present God with a well-edited version of ourselves. God sees the whole of who we are, so we bring the whole of who we are, are to our prayer. And part of who we are is our limits. The time of trial refers to circumstances and situations which expose those limits. The disciples followed Jesus into the the garden, up to the Mount of Olives, certain, certain of their loyalty, their commitment to the mission. And to a point, that was true. They were loyal, they were committed to a point. Jesus warns them that point may be coming, but they can't hear it. They edit it out. I've mentioned before that on nights that uh, we have trouble sleeping, we listen to these sleep stories. And lately, the story of choice is this three-hour history of Rome read uh, with this voice, Remus and Romulus were two twin brothers nursed by a wolf, you know. And and so I've learned a little bit about Rome, Roman history, and I, I, I didn't realize that. This whole business about being at one point ruled by a triumvirate composed of Julius Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus. They worked it out, but then Crassus croaked and it threw off the balance of power. At the time, Caesar is off fighting in Gaul and and, uh, and the question was whether he would return to Rome and, and renegotiate the governing arrangement or would he have his troops with him and take Rome by force. And apparently he kind of struggled with this, back and forth. And there's a, so he's traveling back with the army, and then they get to this small river uh, that separates Gaul from Italy. The name of the river is the Rubicon. And when Caesar knew, he, he knew that once he crossed the Rubicon with his troops, that the decision was made that he had sort of crossed the Rubicon. That's where that phrase comes from. Didn't really know that. did I? I didn't anyway. Yeah. So he crosses the Rubicon. The decision is made. That's the moment he knows fighting is inevitable. And sometimes we have those moments for ourselves. We know all right, this decision is gonna have this consequence, but sometimes we make decisions that we don't realize we've already, we've crossed the Rubicon. There's no going back. Tim Keller uh, described an interview with an inmate convicted of manslaughter. He'd been speeding. He hit a kid trying to cross the street. The injuries from that accident would not have been fatal if he had stopped and called an ambulance when he fled the scene he crossed the Rubicon at that moment he became a felon in the interview however he described that moment as having come much sooner as a boy his dad had this antique watch that everybody was forbidden to touch kept it in a drawer and yet he would go to sneak up there, pull out, pull open the drawer, play with that watch. And one time he broke it. He put it back in the drawer. And his dad discovered it and confronted himself and his uh, two siblings and insisted that the culprit confess. He didn't confess. And after what seemed like hours, his dad finally gave up got away with it. Now, sitting in jail, he realized that was the moment. That set the direction for his life. Had he simply owned up to breaking the watch, maybe he would have had the courage to get out of the car and help that kid. Maybe when the time of trial came, he would not hit the gas in AA meetings the old timer that has decades of sobriety introduces herself the same way someone who shows up stinking of alcohol does i'm so and so and i'm an alcoholic and that you know that's said for the benefit of the drunk who wants to quit drinking it, it you know it's for their benefit it, it, it's it's that you know it's know that they're not alone but it's also for the benefit of the long sober person as well they don't want to lose touch with the person they once were the person whose life was dictated by their desire for alcohol you know i had thought that the first step of the 12 steps aa's 12 steps was the first one was to turn your will and your life over to a higher power uh, it's sort of a cry for deliverance from evil. But it's not. That's the second step. The first step is recognizing that your life has become unmanageable. But when you've worked through the steps, when you've accumulated years of sobriety, it's tempting to forget that that's the case. You can begin to convince yourself that you can, you can in fact, Manage your life just fine. The well-edited version of your life looks pretty compelling to others. You can come to believe it yourself. And that, that's the moment that whatever was behind that desire to drink can start to creep back in and start taking control, making your life unmanageable. Staying in touch with your rock-bottom self, owning it as part of your story, is what keeps an alcoholic on the path of recovery. It's what keeps them from allowing alcohol to dictate the end of the story. You know, uh, when my first marriage was falling apart and after resigning as, as, as pastor, you know, I, had to, I had to hide my Facebook profile I didn't want to see the well-edited lives of others, nor did I have any interest in presenting a well-edited version of my own. The truth was that the well-edited version had kind of come undone. And then, but I, I logged back in again once uh, I started teaching high school. This was going to be the new version of me. And I figured it'd be worth sharing. After all, the world was due for another one of those inspirational movies about the guy down on his luck who takes a position teaching at a tough school and inspiring some street tough kids to pursue their dreams. I figured all I needed was a gimmick. Maybe I I strummed the guitar while I taught or always gnawed on a carrot, something that might look good on a movie poster. The world is still waiting for that movie. And when it comes out, it won't be my story unless it's some sort of horror comedy. Um, I did not inspire dreams, <coughs> created nightmares for myself. Well, I mean, that's not totally true. I mean, first of all, I, I love the students, unmanageable as they could be. And second, I learned a good deal about myself. The well edited version of myself that had not been working in these other areas wasn't working here either. It's just a different version of the same story. That was not easy. That was not easy to confront. In fact, before I was able to do that, I had to make sure I was doing the spiritual running man. And if you weren't here last week, that probably sounds a little bizarre. But last week, we discussed the fourth petition, forgive us our debts discussed it as this basic dance move. A dance move from which arise a host of other moves. I mean, it's for that habit of learning forgiveness. It's like the running man or, or the Charleston or something. You know, it's the basic move that, that enables you to do the other moves you're called to do. And I needed to have that basic move I need to remind myself that basic move in order to have the guts to confront the stuff I preferred to edit out. I I had to trust that I was forgiven. Without forgiveness, without knowing that God loves the whole of me, not just the parts I post on Facebook, then then I'm gonna go find, if I can't do that, then I'm gonna go find ways of excusing myself or blaming others or dismissing it all as a fluke. I mean, that happens, right? It's often easier to see in others than it is in ourselves. People who are so convinced of the well-edited version of themselves that their lives just keep repeating different versions of the same story, whether it's in their relationships or in their jobs, whatever. It just keeps coming to the same sad conclusion. They keep finding themselves in the time of trial, and they keep coming up wanting. I was recently uh, listening to a podcast discussing the First Amendment and whether there should be limits on free speech. Uh, One of the people interviewed was a woman who teaches a course called uh, Dangerous Speech. And she discussed some of the the rhetoric used by the protesters in Charlottesville a few years back. You know, there's that blood and soil uh, and Jews will not replace us. Remember the Jews will not replace us? What's that about? Anyway, she had a, this analysis of it. She said, you know, most anti Semitic movements don't, you know, they don't begin by calling for the extermination of the Jews. They begin by claiming uh, that's what the Jews intend to do to them. So they chant, Jews will not replace us. It's, it, it starts, you know, if you look at history, it starts us down a slippery slope. That's where it starts, by accusing them of what ultimately they will do to the Jews. It's a slippery slope toward genocide. And so she was asked, well, do you think we we need to outlaw that kind of speech given that it sends us down this slippery slope? She said, no, because doing that also sends us down a slippery slope. Governments, she says, tend to be selective in their enforcement of dangerous speech. There tends to be a a self-serving agenda behind when they enforce that law. And so rather than halting fascism, that too can be a step toward fascism. Well, then what can we do? Well, they say, we got to stop thinking it can't happen here. That somehow the United States is beyond the threat of turning fascist. That our ideals and the institutions built on those ideals somehow make us immune to tyranny. That we're somehow exceptional in that regard. In other words, we don't buy into the well-edited version of who we are as a country because that will simply make us unable or unwilling to see rising threats. We will get lazy. We won't see the Rubicon until it's in our rearview mirror. Like those disciples in the garden, we find ourselves asleep when the trial comes. See, the issue, the problem is not that we have limitations. That we live in a world full of slippery slopes. That's just the reality. Limitations are simply part of what it means to be human. The problem is, one of the problems is, our tendency to edit, try to edit those out. To pretend that they aren't part of who we are individually and collectively it is in in embracing those limitations as part of who we are that we are moved to trust the God beyond those limits it's in taking that first step that we can take the second step that night in the garden Jesus not only knows that the disciples are going to confront their limits, he knows he's going to confront his own. In fact, he prays, you know, if there's some other way, may this cup pass from me. But the prayer concludes by him saying, your will, not mine, be done. And what follows is not a story in which Jesus avoids having to confront his limits. It's not a story in which we learn Jesus has no limits. He has limits. He can't carry the cross up the hill. He cries out in thirst, feels forsaken, he dies. The hope of the gospel is not that we don't have limitations. The hope of the gospel is our unlimited God, the God who brings life, life beyond limits, even out of death. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into the time of trial. It's an opportunity to recognize it. we have limits, but we trust ourselves and our limits. To our unlimited God. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.